Hi, my name is Maddie, and the Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 33, verses 12 through 16. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And now, therefore, if you have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For now shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. It is not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Cor. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 16. I suppose that God has shown that we apostles are at the end of the line. We are like prisoners sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle in the world, both to angels and to humans. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise through Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. Up to this very moment, we are hungry, thirsty, wearing rags, abused, and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are insulted, we respond with a blessing. When we are harassed, we put up with it. When our reputation is attacked, we are encouraging. We have become the scum of the earth, the waste that runs off everything up to the present time. I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to warn you, since you are my loved children. You may have 10,000 mentors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I gave birth to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel, so I encourage you to follow by my example. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, found in Mark 6, 7 to 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to, not, to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust when it is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to open our hearts today, Lord, to help us to see Jesus, to help us to hear your word, and to help us to be changed because of your work in us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's been three weeks since the Broncos won the Super Bowl. And uh, I've refrained from making too much of it in church because, you know, it's church, you know. Uh, but I just think you ought to know we are the world champs, and there's been a parade, and some of you were at the parade, and, 
And uh, I found a way this morning to work uh, a bit of that into the introduction this morning, so I'm quite pleased with myself. But um, imagine if you weren't watching the game from your couch, but that you actually were watching the game in the arena, and that somehow you were given these amazing seats, and you were there in the front row. Now, bear with me, Steeler fans, and Patriot fans, and Panther fans, because while you're having nightmares of Von Miller, the rest of us want him to be paid a lot of money. Um, (laughs) But imagine if you're there on the first row of the stadium and you're right there behind the Broncos bench and, you're, and there's some like trash talking going on across church right now. Uh, it's okay. Jews and Gentiles, Steeler fans, Bronco fans, you're all welcome. Um, uh, many are called, but not many are chosen. So, uh, <coughs> so, <laughs> um, so anyway, imagine you're there on that you know, front row right behind the bench and you're just watching what Von Miller is doing, and you're thinking, who is this guy? He can't be human. How is he? You know, the first uh, sack and fumble, you're thinking, this is amazing, but the one that ends the game, you're just, this is incredible. Now, imagine if for a moment, you see Von come out of the game, and the coach looks up to the stands and points at you and says, you, it's your turn. You're in. And you're saying, excuse me, what? She said, Vaughn needs a breather. You're in. Come on. We need you to seal the game. Come on in. You're saying, what? I'm not. I don't have pads or a helmet. And what, what do you mean I'm in? Plus, I'm also 5'8". You know, like, I, what, what do you mean I'm in? There's something different about being a spectator cheering on your hero versus being called into the game. In our series so far, we've been able to be a spectator to this Jesus. You see how I did that there? And you've been able to stand on the sidelines and say, wow, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? In fact, Mark is okay with that. Mark is of the gospel writers, the first one to put uh, the story of Jesus down into words, into writing. And Mark wants us to kind of be like an audience in the theater. He wants us to witness this sort of head-scratching, outside-the-box, remarkable person of Jesus. Mark is okay with that. He wants us to sort of walk alongside and, and, and be right there at the scenes of these amazing miracles. And so as we've talked about Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, the healer, and Jesus, the master of the storms, and last week when Dr. Todd preached Jesus, the hope of the hopeless, we're standing on the sidelines saying, wow, who is this guy? And Mark's been okay with that. He wants us to sort of stand in awe of Jesus, to admit that we don't have a category for him. But today, everything changes, because now Mark wants us to get in the game. Now Mark wants us to step off the sideline and to say, no, you're, you're part of this. You're on this team. You belong in this story too. If we're honest, when we listen to these stories about Jesus, there's probably a part of us that says, hey, um, wouldn't it be really great if Jesus was still here? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, we could take him to Syria. We could take him to uh, the refugee camps. We could take him to the, the, the places that we're doing ministry. We could take him to uh, uh, the, 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 the places where we encounter resistance. We could take him in all of these places. And imagine what Jesus would do if he were there. Imagine how he would change the situation. Imagine how he would love others. Imagine what he would say. If we're honest, we all have these thoughts. Oh, how I wish Jesus were still here. But the crazy thing about it is Jesus didn't leave because it was like, oh, time to go. Jesus left on purpose. 
And he prepared his disciples to continue the mission and the ministry. In other words, the mission and ministry of Jesus by design continues through the followers of Jesus. The mission and ministry of Jesus by design continues through the followers of Jesus. Now, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, this is not good news. This is, I mean, it's one thing for Coach Kubiak to ask me to step in for Von Miller. It's another thing for Jesus to say, okay, would you carry this on now? You're saying, excuse me? I can't carry this on. What do you mean carry this on? I can't do what you do. I'm not who you are. And yet, this is exactly what happens at this point in Mark's story. In fact, there is a moment uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel where there's this great kind of commission. But here, and and in a couple of the other gospels as well, you see it right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, where this, he's preparing them to go, because there's going to be a point when they will go, and he physically will not be there. And so he's preparing them for this by saying, look, I'm calling you to myself, and I want to send you even now. Let's try this even now. Our text this morning is Mark 6. If you've got your your Bibles or your phones, you can scroll there, get to Mark 6, but also go to Mark 3, because the very first time Jesus calls these disciples to himself is actually first in Mark 3. You recall we did the sermon where it says Jesus went to Levi's house and ate with the sinners, and then he went up on the mountain and called disciples to himself. Both things happen. Jesus meets us where we are, but then Jesus calls us to where he is. So Mark 3 is kind of the first instance of the sending. I want us to work through the subject this morning through four questions. And the first question is this, what are we sent to do? Mark 3, verse 14 and 15, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out. Now the word apostle to us sounds like a title. It would eventually carry a certain amount of prestige and authority and all of that. But in its pure form, that word just means the sent one, the messenger. And so Mark is saying these emissaries, these sent ones of Jesus, they first began when he called them to himself and it says he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Later on in Mark 6, the same two things are there. He specifically says to have authority over demons, but then it says when they came back, they told him how they had preached. So those two things are there. What are we sent to do? First, we're sent to preach. Now, it's important as we're working through this this morning to not see this in the third person, to not just say, well, they were sent to preach. But that in these stories of the 12, we're meant to find our own stories to say, well, hasn't Jesus met us at Levi's table and then called us up the mountain to himself? Has not Jesus included us as the disciples, as the followers? And if that is true, then aren't we also sent to preach? The trouble is when you hear this word preach, you think, well, that's not who I am. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you know me, but I don't, I'm not really, I don't do the words thing. I'm not a preacher. Uh, I'm not, I don't know theology. At its core, the gospel is not primarily about mysteries. There is a mystery to faith. There are lots of mysteries to our faith. To talk about a trinity, the three in one, to talk about the mystery of the incarnation, there's lots of mystery to our faith, but the gospel itself is not about mysteries. 
The gospel itself is a story. That means the gospel itself is not theology. So some of you might say, well, I, I don't get the mysteries, and I certainly don't get theology, so therefore I can't preach the gospel. But the gospel is not mysteries, and the gospel is not theology. Doctrine, figure this out, got to say the right word. The gospel in its sort of raw form is the story about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus coming to save. It's the story of Jesus coming to the world to redeem it. And when these disciples are being sent, they're being sent to tell the story. Tell the story about Jesus. Tell the good news. What good news? The good news about Jesus. You see, if the gospel was good advice, then we'd all need to be really smart. Well, you better be really smart because you've got to give advice to people. But that's not what they're, that's not what proclamation of the gospel is. Proclamation of the gospel, it's news. Anybody can carry news. Once you've heard it, you can say, well, that, that's, I've heard this news that God became king through the person Jesus Christ, and through him all can be saved. This is a, an announcement. This is news. This is carrying the story. Secondly, he says to them to have authority over demons, to evil spirits, this might sound a bit outside the pale for us because we think, well, what, what, what does that mean? And certainly it does mean uh, there's an authority over evil and over the demonic, and there's different ones of you I know who've had encounters with that. But you recall in our sermon a few weeks back when we talked about the strong man, it's Jesus who has bound the strong man. The force of evil has been bound. That means our role now is to plunder his house. So when Jesus sends out his disciples and says, you have authority over evil, he's saying, you don't just have to hang out on earth and just sort of hold your ground. You can go take ground. Sometimes we have this impression, it's like, well, this world is just so awful. I heard a preacher say it the other day. Was, uh, he said in his sermon, he said, you know what? My intention for this sermon is to give you all hope. And then he goes on to say, the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse, but thank God we're not going to be here long. He said this to thousands of people. I was thinking, wow, we're a long way from the gospel, aren't we? Jesus wasn't sending them out to say, hey, man, the evil is going to get worse and worse and worse, so just hang on, and one day you'll be airlifted out of here. When Jesus sends them out and says, you have authority, it's another way of saying, you're going to take ground while you're here. This is not a hang on. This is an active mission which involves taking back territory. It means going after people. It means rescuing people. It means finding those who've been beaten down by the enemy of our souls and of our lives and saying to them, here's a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Here is clothing in Jesus' name. Here is food in Jesus' name. Here is a, a warm bed in Jesus' name. Here is how we stand in the point of your pain and say to you, a different kind of kingdom is here. We're meant to take ground. We're meant to walk against. The other thing that is sometimes said among Christians is, well, hey, let's not define ourselves by what we're against. Let's just define ourselves by what we are for. Now, usually when that is said, it's to talk people out of culture wars. So I usually want to give that two thumbs up because I think, yes, we, we don't need to spend our time in culture wars. 
But sometimes we can get to the place where we forget that actually we are meant to stand and act in opposition to evil. That there are times when you say, that is evil and I can do something about it and so I will. This is why William Wilberforce opposed the slave trade a couple centuries ago. There are Christians throughout history that said, you know what? This kind of rhetoric or this kind of action against immigrants or refugees or against whatever, this isn't right. And so I will stand to oppose that because what's animating that is evil. Does that make sense? And so there have to be times when, when part of the mission means to say, I am against, but I'm not against flesh and blood. I'm against the evil behind this. And so I will stand. I will come to take ground. This is what we are sent to do. Second question is, how are we to go? How do we actually go and do this? This is here in our text, Mark 6, verse 7 now. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. When Jesus sends them two by two, there's probably a number of reasons for doing this. Some of them may be practical. You know, um, um, one of them says, if, 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 if one is walking alone and he falls into the ditch, who can help him? So having another person there, there's a, there's a certain sort of practical element of help, of companionship, of being able to collaborate. Maybe there's something in there about complementary gifts. Paul and Barnabas were sent out together. You get the sense that these are two very different people, right? So being sent out two by two has something to say about being sent with others. We're sent with others for the sake of the company, the council, the complementary gifts. But there was also an old Jewish saying that Deuteronomy records that says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. That there's a sense in which Jesus is sending them out two by two to be able to say, this guy isn't making this up. There's credibility to this. He isn't making this up. And actually, in a very macro sense, that is one of the ways I understand ordination. So when people say, well, how come there's such a thing as pastors or priests or, 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 or ordination? I mean, don't we, we don't need any of that. We can all go and, yes, we can all go and preach. We are all to go and preach. But part of what ordination does is it doesn't set a barrier on what the Holy Spirit can do. Rather, it sets a boundary from the errors that humans can do. Okay, let me say that again. It's not a barrier to what the Spirit can do. The Spirit can speak through Balaam's donkey if he'd like. Remember that story, right? But it's a boundary on the errors of what, to what humans can do. So ordination is a way of saying this person who speaks or pro- who pronounces forgiveness is doing so in line with the church, the apostolic tradition throughout the centuries. And so if someone on the, on the street or if someone um, holding a, you know, a, a card that says, you're all going to hell, this is the gospel, you can say, well, that's part of the gospel, but th- that's not the good news part, right? Or if someone on TV says, I'll tell you the gospel, the gospel is if you give money to my private jet, you'll never get sick again. You can say, that is not the gospel, So part of the two-by-two is credibility, and in a macro sense, ordination is a way of saying, look, you stand with the apostolic tradition of the church as a steward of the gospel, and to be able to say with trustworthiness, this is the good news about Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's all part of this picture. The second thing he says to, to them about how to go is then he says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag. And then it says no money in their belt. So there is a belt, a staff, a belt, wear sandals, 
and not to put on two tunics, which implies one tunic is enough. Interestingly enough, these same four things are exactly how Israel left Egypt on the night of the first Passover. If you read Exodus 12, verse 11, it says they had a staff, they had a belt, they had one tunic, and they had just a pair of sandals on their feet, and that is how they left Egypt on the night of Passover. When Jesus sends them out, he doesn't just send them out with others, but he sends them out with this kind of simplicity. If you're a visual person, picture the Israelites fleeing Egypt on the night of the Passover. It's a way of saying you are exiting the kingdom of this world. You are exiting the entanglements of the kingdom of this world. And as you're being sent, Jesus is giving these disciples a picture. As you're being sent, you're not just representing me, but you're being disentangled from the world. Sent with others, but sent with simplicity. The sense of disentanglement from the world. Wherever you are, whether you have stuff or don't have stuff, whether you are in a position where you're earning a lot or whether you're obeying God's call in such a way that puts you in a position to not earn a lot, all of us have to understand that we've been sent out of the kingdom of this world. We've exited the kingdom of this world. We've exited Egypt. And so our hearts are meant to be disentangled from the things of earth. The third thing Jesus says to them is he talks to them about going to homes. And if any place will not receive, he says, um, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. It's kind of the idea of being sent with humility. That, that in this world, you become grateful guests. Grateful for whatever the gift is. Make a clean break when, it, when the welcome is not there, but you don't have to live your life as if these things are owed to you. Does that make sense? As citizens of the kingdom of God living in this world, we're to be like people who are dependent on the generosity of others. That doesn't mean, okay, so let's flesh this out. It could mean living by faith and donation, support raising and all that stuff. It certainly could. But it also means that even as we function in society, we don't act like society owes us anything as Christians. Now, that's quite the opposite of the style of certain Christians' posture in the world today, where we are so used to demanding our rights. And Jesus says, to be sent into the world is to be grateful for the gifts, not demanding your rights. And so if you're welcomed as a believer, rejoice. And if you're not, oh well, get over it. Let that dust not stick on your feet. It's okay. You join a long line of people who have not been welcomed. But this sort of whining and crying about, oh my gosh, can you believe how evil the world is? Christians are not even invited to. It's like, you know, (laughs) what if you changed your whole posture in the world? And that when people welcomed you, you acted grateful. And when they don't, you're fine. You're okay. But this thing of entitlement, that's not how we're sent into the world. Expected to be given royal treatment, welcomed, seats of cultural power. That's something Christians have been used to in America for a long time. Seats of cultural power. 
What if you no longer have the seat of cultural power? What if we're a guest in the home of a pluralistic society that says, okay, we'll listen to you for a little bit. No, we don't want to listen to you now. And, and you say, okay, glad when you will, fine when you don't. That's the, the attitude of these disciples being sent. Now, so far, I want to stop right here before getting into the other two questions. So far, when you listen to this, you think, well, man, this sounds interesting. This sounds intriguing. We're sent into the world. We're supposed to preach. We're supposed to uh, oppose what is evil. We're supposed to uh, go with others and, and be disentangled from the world and to be grateful for whatever we do receive in the world. Okay, great. But, but Glenn, well, just one problem. What if I don't really like this whole evangelism thing? What if, what if I don't, what if that's not me? I actually relate to that quite a bit. Uh, for, for much of my life, I, I would never say that I'm uh, a natural evangelist. I'm the guy that when I get on an airplane, I want to put my headphones in, you know? And when I'm in a room full of strangers, I look at my phone, you know? I don't, re- I'm not looking for like, mm, who can I share the gospel with today? Now, I don't say, I say that to my own shame, right? But this is, this is just sort of, that's how, I'm not the, this, this, this natural sort of guy. When I was a kid in youth group, they made us go door to door, and I hated it. Hated it. Hated knocking on doors of, of a Buddhist family or a Hindu family and having to say, hi, can I talk to you about Jesus? And them just looking at me like... No, you know, <laughs> so maybe I'm scarred, maybe I got issues, I don't know. But this is not what comes easy to me. About a year ago, I, I was um, uh, in, invited to be part of a, a small team of pastors from the U.S. that were uh, witnessing a, a program that had been created and launched out of a church in London, and it was on one of my trips, I was over there already for something else, and so extended the time to, to join this little cohort of, of American pastors, and was introduced to a program called Alpha, and some of you may know it as the Alpha Course. They've dropped the word course, but it still is a series of weeks. And, and, and when I was over there, I was really uh, struck by the way this program was, you know, they had, they've really sort of, um, in, in many ways, perfected the approach and the questions and the materials and all of that. But I'm always nervous about things that are overly put together, you know, just me, kind of a, a natural cynic, um, somehow saved by grace. And I, I just, you know, I, I don't, how do I, how do I, uh, is this right? Is this good? Is this bad? Are there other ways to do and in the midst of that week there, one of the guys who was sharing, one of the leaders of the church, said in a very simple way, he said, evangelism is not a survival strategy for the church. And I thought, well, in a church in England, there's a lot of places where it's declining, and certainly there are some trends of that in the U.S., like, but you're saying it's not a survival strategy. No, no, no. Evangelism is not about saying, hey, we're losing market share of the culture. It's time to get sales and marketing on it. And he went on to say, evangelism is a theological imperative. And he said, if we believe in the God who reached down from heaven to earth, then we must be a people who reach out beyond ourselves. And it struck me and it convicted me because there's so, it's so easy for me and probably for us as a church to have all of our momentum and energy pull inward. The, 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 for churches, the gravitational pull can easily become inward where it's like, okay, well, let's just do this, let's just do this. 
And that's one of the reasons why during Lent we're saying, what if one time during Lent you invite a neighbor to your home for a meal? Point yourself outward. But when I was there, and, and, and one of the things we got to do on the last day there was to witness this church um, starting its next season, its next semester of Alpha. The amazing thing is they, they, they started this in 19, uh, late 80s, but in the 90s, they discovered that Alpha really had its magic when the people coming were not already saved. They thought it was maybe going to be like a new believers class because week one is, is there more to this life? Week two is, who is Jesus? Week three is, why did he die? And so you're kind of like, this is not a great like, evangelism thing, is it? Because it's sort of up, up, up front. But in a weird paradoxical way, it turned out to be the perfect thing for people outside the church because it was not a bait and switch. You ever been part of something that was a bait and switch thing? Your friend says, hey, just come over for a meal with a few other couples. And turns out, you know, then they pull out the flow charts for the multi-level thing and like, you can get it now. Nothing wrong with that, right? But, but no one likes to be bait and switched. Dude, I thought it was just a meal, right? And the, part of the charm of Alpha is that it's sort of up front. It's like, we're going to have a meal. Someone's going to present an idea. And then you're going to have discussions at your table, and you can ask any question, you can shoot it down, and the people at the table that are facilitating don't have any pressure to give you the answers. In fact, they're trained to just sort of help draw out more questions. So since they made that switch, it has gone to 169 countries, been translated in 112 languages, and 27 million people have been through it. I'm sitting there thinking, Glenn, you're so arrogant. Like, here's these testimonies from all around the world, secular Europe, global south, all this stuff. And I'm thinking, we don't need this, you know. And the Lord's just wrecking me, saying, what if? What? Not that this is the answer, but, but is there anything intentional that we're doing as a church to help people share the story of Jesus? And I had to come face to face with the answer being No. So that night, we got to witness the launch of this, and we're in the basement of the church, guys playing a guitar, praying with all the table facilitators. They're all getting pretty pumped up, a lot of young people. This is West London, London kind of a richer area of the city. And we come up, the doors open, and in come pouring in hundreds of people. I was blown away. And they come in, and they get some food, which free food's always great. And they sit down at different tables. There's a guy that gives a very winsome uh, com- uh, talk about could there be more to this life and his own journey toward faith, 25 minutes or so. And then they go to their tables and they start discussing it. And they do this for a few weeks in a row. And I thought, all right, we got to give this a shot. <laughs> we got to try this in Colorado Springs. Not because, oh, this is the answer, but because... How could we not intentionally as a church try to find a way to throw the doors open and welcome people in? And actually, one of the things I heard, they were like, the first you know, core component of Alpha is meals. I was thinking, we love meals at New Life Downtown. <laughs> Tables, that's what we do. So that's what we're going to do. Wednesday nights, beginning April 6th, everybody say April 6th. We're going to start at the commons right there at Tejon and Boulder. Week one, is there more to this life? 6.30. I've got these cards here. And this is what it'll look like. People will show up at 6.30. We'll, we've catered in dinner. They'll come in, get a meal, chat at their tables for 20, 30 minutes. I'll, sh- I'll talk for 20, 30 minutes. Then they'll have 
discussions at their table where everything is um, safe. Nothing is off limits. Every conversation, every question, no quick answers. This isn't about apologetics or arguing or proving. This is about listening. And our, so here's the deal. We have about 15 or 16 facilitators already prepped, chosen, trained, ready. That means we're going to have about eight tables. That means we can take about 45 guests. So here's what I'd like to say to you right here in the middle of this sermon. We don't always have this practical application that's handily, but here it is. You might be here and you are not quite sure what's going on with this whole Jesus thing. You just keep showing up on Sundays because something weird happens in a high school. It's great. This might be your night to come and say, all right, I'll come. April 6th, 6.30, I'll come, have a meal, explore all of my questions. That's great. But odds are you're here and you know people. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have colleagues that you're like, dude, I think if I could invite them, I might even offer to come with them and just say, hey, would you be open to exploring just kind of some questions about life and faith, you know, from a Christian perspective, but totally safe, atmosphere, friendly, you know, over a meal? Would you be open to that and see what people say? So I've got a stack of cards. You can come find me after the service. Ours is going to run for eight weeks, basically April and May, Wednesday nights, and for eight weeks. And we're going to do this for two hours. If nothing else, we're going to keep at it as a way of saying, as a church, we're not going to make it easy to forget that we are on mission with Jesus. We're not going to come and just say, well, let's just get, you know, let's huddle closer, closer. No, the closer you come to Jesus, the more he sends you out. Remember, he calls them to himself on the mountain so that they might be with him and so that they might go out and preach. We're with him, we go out. We were with him, we go out. We gather and we are sent. We gather and we are sent. This has to be part of who we are. Amen? Now, when you hear this, maybe you're thinking about this question about your life in general or about Alpha in particular, and the third question is very real to you. It's, will the mission succeed? Okay, Glenn, this is great. I'm pumped up. That's great. But will it succeed? I mean, is it going to work? Verse 12 and 13 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. So you're thinking, this is awesome. It clearly worked, right, 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 right? And then you're looking at the text, and you're like, wait a minute. Verses 12 through 13, and then verse 30. Say, what happened in those, you know, 17 other verses? Remember last week, Dr. Todd told us about the, the method called the Markin sandwich. He starts telling one story, and then he goes over here and puts this other bit in, and then he comes back to the story. You remember that? This is exactly what's happening here in Mark 6. Mark's telling us the stories of the disciples being sent, and they come back, and they go out, and they preach the gospel, and then verse 30 says, and they come back and tell Jesus everything they've done, and you're like, this is awesome. This is unstoppable. What? Is that story you just inserted in the middle there, Mark? Guess what it is? It's the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. There are only two passages in Mark's gospel that are not about Jesus. Both of them are about John. You'll recall that when Mark opens the the drama, the opening character that we see is John the Baptist dressed in camel hair, crying out, prepare the way, right? And when Jesus' ministry begins, John the Baptist 
ministry ends. He gets arrested. That's how Mark lays the, 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 the drama. You, you're excited about Jesus' ministry beginning, and you're like, wow, this is so epic. But then the dark shadow from Mordor hangs over. <laughs> you're like, something bad's going to happen here. And now here we are in the drama, six chapters in, six episodes in, or eight episodes in, if you're counting by the series, whatever. Mark says, now Jesus is sending out disciples. And as he sends out disciples, he tells us the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. As if to say to us, will the mission succeed? Yes, but there is a cost to following Jesus. Will the mission succeed? Yes, but there is a cost to following Jesus. See, authority over evil does not mean immunity against its attacks. Authority over evil does not mean immunity against its attacks. Sometimes we're tempted to think, look, if I follow Jesus, won't everything work out? Won't my business automatically grow? Won't friends love me? Neighbors call me favored and anointed one? And I mean, isn't this all just going to be fantastic? Mark is no prosperity gospel preacher. Mark wants us to know, you follow Jesus, the mission will prevail. The word of God will bear fruit. But there will be a cost. And there's no telling what that cost might be for different ones of us. Paul, we heard the New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 4. The message paraphrase is really fun in 1 Corinthians 4. See, the Corinthians were sort of the first generation of prosperity gospel Christians. They believed that if you were an apostle, your life was awesome. And so they looked at Paul's life, and they're like, dude, you're working a day job, and then you're preaching, and you're probably not that awesome. And Paul's like, do I have to defend my apostleship to you? But that's what the first letter Corinthians is about. There's this sort of subplot in there where he's having to say, listen, guys, you may have got the gospel squirrely just a little bit, because the good news is not nothing bad will ever happen to you. The good news is Jesus is better than the worst that you experience. And so this is how Paul says it. He says, it seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on stage in a theater in which no one wants to buy a ticket. We're something everyone stands around and stares at like an accident in the street. We're the Messiah's misfits. See, you might be sure of yourselves, but we live in the midst of frailties and uncertainties. You think you can use your faith to command circumstances and sicknesses and control your life? Paul's like, well, we're living in frailty and uncertainty. I don't know what you're living with. You might be well thought of by others, but we're mostly kicked around. Much of the time, we don't have enough to eat. We wear patched and threadbare clothes. We get doors slammed on our faces, and we pick up odd jobs anywhere where we can eke out a living. But go ahead with your private jets. When they call us names, we say, God bless you. When they spread rumors about us, we put in a good word for them. We're treated like garbage, potato peelings from the culture's kitchen, and it's not getting any better. And then Paul says, you've got many teachers in the faith, but you have few fathers. I gave birth to you in the faith. Whether you like it or not, I'm your father, Luke. <laughs> and they're saying, we don't want you as our father. We'd rather it be someone who is successful and clean and awesome. But you, Paul, you're like... Just come off the earth. He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> come here, kids. <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh, is this really what we signed up for? He's like, yeah. Yeah, it is. There's a cost to following Jesus. I remember a few decades ago, my dad 
was working at an ad agency in Malaysia, and it was an ad agency headquartered in New York, but it had its it had a branch in Malaysia, if you can call it a branch, a location. And many of the same clients that were at the New York office were also clients locally there in Malaysia through their office. And my dad was an account executive, so it was his job to sort of wine and dine the representatives from these different um, companies, these global brands that he was representing uh, as their account ad agency. I remember as a kid going to the office, probably the coolest work environment you'd ever seen, you know, bright colors, creative people, just people on the move, you know. And it became very clear the Lord was calling both he and my mom into vocational ministry and they were going to quit their jobs and go to this small Bible school in Portland, Oregon. And the guy who was the head over that company in Malaysia was an expat and he sat down with my dad, and he's joking. He was a real jovial chap, you know, always with something in his hand. And um, was like, David, is this, a, is this a ploy? Do you want a raise? I'll give you a raise. Like, what, you, what is this? This is crazy. What are you doing, you know? And if it had been me, I mean, we might have been tempted to be like, okay, how much is this raise we're talking about, you know? Um, but for my dad and for my parents, it was clear. It was like, no, we're supposed to follow Jesus into this. And it's going to mean a cost. Now, for many of you, the cost may not be that you're going to resign your job. But the cost might mean the way that you do business differently. It might mean that on those business trips, you can't go to the after-after party. Because you're like, I, I, I've, I've been sent by Jesus not just my company. It's like, I, I, you know, I'm not doing that. Or maybe I remember years ago sitting down with a young man who was pursuing a career in a bank and the, the pressure of the particular environment he was under was that he was supposed to force people, or not force, but get people to sign up for loans that they really had no business getting into, that would actually wreck their futures. And he just thought, I can't with good conscience do this. And so he bowed out of that trajectory. There might be different situations for you, but there's always a cost to following Jesus in the midst of your life. Wouldn't it be easy if following Jesus meant you got to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth right away? Isn't it so much harder to be asked to stay in the world and yet represent a different master? To live like you belong in a different kingdom. Be a different kind of school teacher. Be a different kind of construction worker. Be a different kind of contractor. Be a different kind of call center operator. Be a different kind of customer service. Be a different kind because you're not just an employee of that company. You're an emissary of the king, an apostle of the kingdom. Now you're saying, well, well Glenn, the, the truth is I just don't feel up for that. I don't really know how to do that. Our fourth and final question this morning is exactly that. What if we don't feel qualified for it or worthy of it? What if we're aware of how imperfect we are? What if we're aware that sometimes we get upset and lose our temper at work and have I just destroyed my witness because I went on a cursing streak? Oh, I mean, what, what, uh, what if I've just messed up? What if I, I mean, isn't it over? Surely I can't be considered a messenger of Jesus. The disciples up until this point in Mark's gospel had tried to stop Jesus' ministry, Mark 1. They had total lack of faith in Jesus' power, Mark 4. 
And they had been frustrated with Jesus' apparent lack of care, Mark 5. These are not stellar people. Mark wants us to know, you may know Peter the Apostle. You know, by the time he's writing this in A.D. 64 or 65, maybe the legend of Peter had grown. Mark's like, let me tell you about young Peter, okay? Come on, man. These are just people. But people sent in Jesus' name. See, other rabbis would send people out in their own name or in the, or sorry, in the name of the Torah, but Jesus sends them out in his own name. It's totally different. We are sent in the power and with the presence of Jesus. We are sent in the power and with the presence of Jesus. That's how we're sent. Moses in our Old Testament readings said, God, I don't want to go and lead these people unless you go with me, right? The legends of rabbis when they would send out their protégés was that the rabbi himself would always personally go with them. And so at first glance, when we think about Jesus' sending, we're like, Jesus, you weren't personally with them. How, How is this different? But actually, if you look a little bit closer, look at that famous Matthew 28, Great Commission passage. Some of you know this. Some of you might have it on a refrigerator magnet. What does it say? Go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey, right? And we got all of that part. But do you know, the Great Commission actually begins with a statement about Jesus' power. It starts out by Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, therefore go. In other words, you're going in my power, (laughs) And then how does it close? It closes with Jesus saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. It begins with his power. It ends with his presence. And in between is your mission, which is not actually your mission, but his mission. How is this possible? Because you're good enough? Because you're smart enough? Because you're consistent enough? You're self-disciplined enough? You're righteous enough? No. This is possible. Because the power and the presence of Jesus goes with you. Goes with you. Listen, I, I, I know that it can be a struggle to do any kind of consistent morning prayer, morning time. I, I, I get it. But what if for 10 seconds every morning you got up and before you started your day, whether it's working at home with the care of children and, or, or teaching children or, or, or whether it's outside the home in a school or in a work environment or on an airport, in an airport and on an airplane. What if before any of that begins, for 10 seconds you say, Jesus, send me into this day with your power and with your presence. How would that change everything? How would that change everything? All of a sudden, it's not just emails or appointments or meetings or conference calls, but it's somehow, Lord, in the midst of this, I am being sent by you. Sometimes I'll catch myself in the middle of a long day and about to go into an appointment that might be a really difficult one or to go to a a, a hospital or a place where it's, Lord, I'm just not ready for this. I don't know what to say. And I take a few moments in my car and just say, Lord, would you send me to this Send me to this place now so that I go not with my own power but with yours. And I go not with my own presence but with yours. Amen? Just bow your heads this morning.